Hello and welcome to God's Own Scale, the only podcast dedicated to 6mm wargaming. I'm Sean Clark, your host, and today I'm joined by Mr. Peter Berry from Bacchus Miniatures. We talk about the Joy 6, its origins and developments to where it is now a staple in the wargaming calendar. I also throw in a few questions at him, following a shout out across Twitter and Facebook for suitable topics to throw at him. Before we go on to the interview, a couple of things. Firstly, on the name of the podcast, uh, this has been raised a couple of times. I forget where I first heard the phrase God's Own Scale. I suspect it was on one of Peter's own posts uh, from years ago on the old Bacchus website. I may be wrong, but I'm fairly sure that's where I first heard it. It is thrown around occasionally uh, across various forums, uh, claiming other scales to be God's own scale, but we know what is God's own scale. It's six mil, of course. I've always seen it as a tongue-in-cheek phrase, to be honest, not to be taken too seriously. I'm certainly not anti any scale, and I've collected and played everything from two mil through to twenty-eight mil over the years. This podcast is here simply to highlight the six mil scale, which can often be overlooked and promoted in such a way that any six mil skeptics out there might think of considering it. For the next project in my eyes no one scale is better than any other i just choose to concentrate on it for this podcast i hope no one thinks that i'm scalist so to speak and really it's just about having a bit of fun and hopefully highlighting what can be done in the six mil scale uh, secondly i'm aware of sound issues particularly during the intro and outro of the last episode i do apologize for that to be honest i'm still getting used to the technology and learning as i go I hope that each episode will see improvements in editing, sound and overall production. But please just bear with me as I carry on this journey. I hope that the content mitigates somewhat the shortcomings in the production values at the moment. I do promise to get better. I've already been asked about whether I am intending to go down the Patreon route with God's Own Scale. To be honest, I've not considered it yet, but never say never. Hosting, whilst not prohibitively expensive does come out of my hobby budget and it may be something I'll look at in the future. I'll say now it's unlikely I'll be able to provide any incentives or extra content to Patreons above the regular production of this podcast so that may have a bearing on which way I decide to go in the future. As we move out of the summer months into the autumn thoughts turn to the shows uh, left for us to attend and spend our hard-earned cash on to replenish the dent in the lead pile that we've made over the summer. Plans for winter painting and gaming projects develop and ferment in our minds. I'll touch on my own in the next episode. I am contemplating attending Crisis for the first time this year in Antwerp in Belgium. Uh, It does come a week after the proposed date uh, for the UK leaving the EU, deal or no deal. And whilst not at all wishing to get political, I may have to consider my decision closer to the time to see just what's what but it's definitely something i want to do the plan's actually to tag it onto a battlefield trip to the somme uh, and whilst it's some actually some distance away from northern france i am planning on stopping it off in ypres as part of the journey so i'm very much looking forward to that okay enough of me wittering on as ever please stick around after the interview where i'll close out this episode but for now Let's talk about six. 
Mademoiselle from Armandville said to you, sing it with all your heart and soul and see everyone ride up the pole. Mademoiselle from Armandville. Thank you very much for joining me on uh, the God's Own Scale podcast. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. I, I know you're a man in demand, aren't you? You've you've been around the block a little bit with the podcasts, and that's that's not a euphemism. But... <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I've been passed around from presenter to presenter. Yes, yes. Yeah. Me- meeples have had a bit of you, haven't they? And I know Henry's uh, had a recent chat with you, which uh, I thought was really, really great to have that uh, that insight into the origins of Bacchus and mm-hmm. uh, just where you are now. So. How how are things in general at the moment? Very very busy. Um, as I think possibly anyone listening to this podcast will know, uh, we've got the the shopping cart closed at the moment, and that that's just to enable us to catch up with a, a massive backlog of orders which were generated in the past five or six weeks. Which must be a nice place to be in. It is, but at the same time, one of the things that I hate doing is letting customers down, and by having a a, a longer unusual and to my mind unacceptable delaying getting orders out and at the same time stopping new orders coming in because I know that also upsets customers I'm, I'm caught between a rock and a hard spot. Yeah that, that must be tricky because you, I'm fairly sure you'll know that as soon as you open that cart again then there'll be a another deluge that will come through. Well yes I mean we, we all know there's a, there's a pent-up demand which will <laughs> sort of fall upon us as soon as we get the cart going but that that's that's part of the process, and I'm not going to make life any easier for myself by saying that we will, again, be having to close the cart for a short period, probably in October, because we are expanding the premises we work at. The, the workshop is is being uh, completely taken apart and rebuilt, and all the admin is moving out of the workshop area into some uh, adjacent offices. So we, we, we can't keep production going into those circumstances so once again we will be closing the cart for probably at least a week maybe two that's really really going to get people banging the orders in like nobody's business <laughs> once we do get things going <laughs> yes i think you might need to take on some uh, seasonal staff that might be the answer yeah yeah i mean no seriousness people do say to me sometimes you know well why just don't you get somebody else in to take the uh, the load of the casting you can't just do that. It takes at least a year to train a caster from scratch. And even an experienced caster needs several months just to get used to the way we're doing things, how the moulds work. It's it's a skilled job. You've always got this difficulty because, again, once you get somebody in, you may not want to keep them. So you'll spend six months training them and then they're back on the streets again, which is not really fair to either party. No, but I think if you look at the overall picture of where Bacchus are and where Six Mill is at the moment. I think if you took a step back and took took that helicopter view, you've got to be happy as to where things are going at the moment. Oh, undoubtedly. The whole Six Mill adventure is, is, is one that's moving forward. Uh, you could say that with any of the guys making stuff in the scale, and they'll all say the same thing. The feedback I had when I was going around chatting to the to chaps at Joe Six, all, we were all in the same boat. We were all running as fast as we could to stand still. It, I think it's part of a general shift in, in the hobby. I've talked about this with yourself at length. The wargaming hobby as a whole is beginning to change. And all the larger scale games you see now are becoming skirmish games. And it's basically just a logical endpoint from people trying to use 
the big figures, the 28 mil plus figures for large scale games and realizing that they're not actually that good for that particular use. They're too expensive. They take too long to paint. And the investment in painting time is phenomenal, some of you guys. The table size required for even a reasonable size game is massive, so big you actually can't reach in the end. It, it's like using a hammer to put a screw in. Or, you know, a, a saw to do some carving of a, an intricate character. It's not the right tool to do the right job. Now, for doing what they're doing now increasingly, which is having games with 15 to 20 figures with some you know, big sculpted terrain and making the size and scale of the game and the objectives of the game match the size and scale of the figures, that's what I've been suggesting for many years. And then leave the smaller scale things for the bigger games and that I think is a message which has got through to an awful lot of people and it's true not only for 6 mil but also for 10 I'm, I'm great friends with the guys at Pendraken good chaps all of them and they are in a similar situation to ourselves they're getting a lot of orders and a lot of the increased business they're getting at the moment is from people downsizing people realising the logic of going to small figures for big games and selling off their older collections or just converting them into a skirmish. It's, it's a really good point, actually. I, I was chatting to Robert Dunlop on the last podcast about this, where he recreated the Battle of the Marne on a 20-foot long table with a ground scale of roughly one inch to 100 yards. And the impossibility of doing that in anything other than six mil. And it conveyed the vast space that these battles in the First World War were fought over. And it's very difficult to appreciate just how big these fronts were if you do it in any other scale in any other way. Yes, 20th century game with the ranges of the the weapons. And as you say, the, the huge fronts and the, the more open battlefields. It can't be done on that sort of scale. With even 15 mil, you've got to go small. Uh, let's give you one really good example of that. Of that, We produce a whole range in our, in our Great War uh, figures of big heavy howitzers, 150 mils. The thing about all of these is you don't really need them, but even in 6 mil. And 6 mil, they're still too far back behind yes. the table to, to need any representation. To do it in anything bigger than 6 is just crazy. But I, th- I think even in 6, though, I think you you still get that perspective. Certainly on a table like Robert will put on, or Pear, for instance. I know Pear is Great Northern War, but that still the 14, 15, 16 feet tables, those things don't look out of place, do they? Those guns that are firing three miles or whatever it was. But if yeah. you do that in 20, if you do that in 20, well, anything bigger than six mil, really. But in 28 mil, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's it's got to be used in the right way. But again, I'll give you a really good example of that uh, on the same theme. A couple of years ago, I saw that somebody had just released a British, an eight-inch howitzer in 28 mil. For I don't know what use is that at any level. Seriously, what 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 use is it apart from say doing a diorama? Even as an objective of a game, this is still something which is 15, 20 miles behind the belt lines. You might want to use it as a bombing room, but there again, you'd have to use a 28mm aircraft. You're not going to do much with that, really, are you? And I think, I think it's even stretching my sink. It's a breakthrough raid. It's a nice model and it's all right, but it's useless in terms of a practical war games piece. Yes, you're right. I've always stressed that this is a 
positivity podcast and we aren't, we aren't here to bash. There's certainly a place, isn't there, for every scale and every range and every period within the hobby. We're a broad church, but I think when you're coming down to the, the usefulness of those bits of kit, other than a modelling project, then I'm not, I'm not quite sure what people are doing with it, to be honest. But there you go. Right, so I wondered if we could perhaps talk about the Joy of Six, Peter, because other than Sunday, where I collected a rather heavy package from you, which I'll talk about later, I did weigh that package, and I'm glad it didn't go through the post. It's <laughs> one thing. But um, I saw you at the end of the Joy of Six, uh, which was around the time that I launched this podcast. And other that, than that sort of thousand-yard stare that you got, having been clearly run ragged all day now you've got some perspective on the day and what the joy of six is i thought i wondered if we could perhaps go into a bit of a, a history and, and what gave you the idea of putting the joy of six together in the first place oh gosh that gets complex we like complex questions on the god's own scale well the problem is, is it's a bit like dangling some food in front of a hungry man if, if you give me a topic and talk at length on i just sit back put the kettle on and, and, and relax for a few hours. I have a cup of tea in front of me, Yorkshire tea. So we're yeah, right. yeah well, you, you take that for a while, you have a good slurp. The genesis of, of the Joy 6 was, I don't know how far back now, maybe 2007, 2008, perhaps a bit later than that, I don't know. We put on what we call the Bacchus Gaming Day. And what it was, it was an opportunity for six more gamers just to get together, to meet other six more gamers, to play some games. We had a little trade stand there as did uh, Wargames Emporium, our, our partners in Ring the Joy 6. And mustn't be forgotten, uh, John uh, does a great job in uh, helping his backup and put this whole thing together. He sells GHQ. Uh, he stocks a big range of GHQ, so that was his interest in the 6 mil side of it. But yeah, together we decided we'd put this on uh, a venue in Sheffield. And then that went all right. I mean, not, nothing special. And then we'd put it another year, and, and then we found that some of the traders thought it was a really good idea and would like to come in. Not many, but you know that, that took us a bit by our back, a bit by surprise. And then we found that people didn't want to just play games, they wanted to put games on, like a proper war game show. And it sort of grew from that. It was something we never had planned. But once the seeds of the idea had been put in my head, after a couple of increasingly popular and increasingly successful shows, uh, it was fairly obvious that it, the Bacchus Gaming Day was an inappropriate name for the event. It was also, to be honest, very limiting in terms of what we could do with it because I saw an opportunity. For years, I've talked to people who've gone to war game shows and been heartily disappointed at the fact that you can't see anything in small scale at shows. Talking to those people who did put the games on, they were heartily fed up of effectively being ignored or sidelined no matter how much effort they put into the games and, and again I'm, I'm going to try and positive about this if you are fanatically interested in 28 mil gaming or 15 mil gaming and you go to a war game show your eyes are drawn to the subjects that interest you so you write your blog about it you write all the nice things about the stuff that's interesting and you don't bother anything else so you could have, as happened at the Worlds at Derby University once, a six-mill game winning the best of show. Not mentioned at all by any of the bloggers because it wasn't of any interest to them. 
So you put in the game and that, that disheartens you. And I've come across this before. Again, if you're not interested in signal gaming, you bounce. I've had people walk up to my trade stand at Partisan, the old Partisan, which is very much the bastion of the Nottingham lead belt. And they'd see the nice unique packaging and the lighting on the trade stand, and they'd walk towards it. And then the fear in their eyes started about a yard out when they realised, goodness me, it's not 28 mil, I'd better just go somewhere else. And they'd bounce off. It's like a big elastic wall across the to the trade stand. And it was a same effect with shows, with the, with the games. So these chaps weren't really getting the recognition they deserved. Uh, only sort of feedback for, for making the effort. Uh, they were also feeling unappreciated. And it also meant that no matter how good a game we put on to try and tell people how good we, we could be in the scale, it just didn't register. It had no impact. And the idea sort of grew in my mind that what we ought to do is offer a showcase, something where people could come along and really strip the stuff, show a really nice game with lots and lots of toys, show what we could do. From the very start, I tried to get one game at the show, which would always be a big, spectacular game. We had the very large Towton project, 20-odd thousand figures on a huge, massive, mini civil war game from Sheffield War Game Society, a game. 22,000 figures. Uh, Robert put on a Robert Dunlop put on a massive, massive game for us. It seemed to strike a note within the six six mil community. People going, well, we can put a nice game, and the people who come along to the show appreciate what we've done, and they talk to us like normal people, and it snowballed from there. It's grown bigger and bigger every year. It's attracted more traders and more games. It's growing quickly and it's growing way beyond all the expectations that we would have ever had of the show again similar to the growth in demand for your figures and the other manufacturers this is going beyond where you initially visualized it is that is that right oh absolutely yeah i mean if, if you'd have told me 10 years ago that we'd have had a show like the last year of six i would have suggested you sit down and take a few deep breaths and, and, and lay off the brown liquid that you're drinking. We do nothing. This is the six mil community. We we put a an event on where there's a hall and some tables available. The, the response from everybody out there, even the people who just turn up on the day and are part of the general buzzing atmosphere, it's unplanned. It is something which happens spontaneously. But it's wonderful to see. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be part of. You must get an enormous sense of satisfaction from seeing it from those first couple of games days to where it ended up in in July last month. Yes, absolutely. We've got people travel now from all over the world to come to the show, which again is is way beyond any expectations we've ever had of it. There's there's, uh, some people from America, weren't there? I know that talking to Robert, there was a father and son uh, who come over to the Jove Six and ended up taking part in his demonstration game. Yes. Which, yep. which is just amazing, isn't it? And it's a bit of a cliche from small acorns, you know, big things grow. But you've been a lone voice, let's say, as one of the more high-profile characters within the ind- within the six mil industry. And it must have felt like at times that you were the only person banging that drum. 
yes, but that never worried me. Um, uh, swimming against the flow is something I do, and I've got this innate streak of stubbornness, which I think is uh, just keeps me going. Because if you know that actually what you've got is something worth telling people about, you will persevere with it. Make this strike sounds like some sort of strange offbeat cult leader. Uh, uh, but again, the, the more criticism, and oh, believe me, I, I got a massive amount of criticism and negative feedback in the early days that was getting in a way just spurred me on articulating what an awful lot of people already thought, but either didn't have the opportunity or the stupidity to stand up in public and say it. I know that uh, over the years you've you've either spoken about this on podcasts or or put it on blogs or during your New Year's address i don't know if that's the right word for it the the fable i think you're looking for well interestingly uh trevor crook uh, has put a question about that which we'll come to very shortly but within those blog entries or those posts that you put online i know that you've talked about individual occasions where customers at shows have as you've said wandered up up to your stand and then if they haven't run away straight away they've made some rather unkind comments regarding the scale uh, which has left you somewhat frustrated and I can't imagine what that's like for somebody like yourself who's so passionate about the scale and makes his living from the scale to be faced with that. Well to be honest first of all I'm resigned to it Uh, and second I expect it but I've had so many of the conversations that I can predict how any reaction, any conversations from an individual who comes in with that attitude. As I'm, I'm not antagonistic. I'm, I'm not particularly uh, going to have a go at them. All I will do is I will just just try and winkle out of them why they feel that way and perhaps show that they might be mistaken and that if they only have a go, perhaps they wouldn't be so small and you don't go blind anybody can have a go at painting them and they do look good my goodness aren't they good value for money and i'm very patient with them i I really am because what would be the sense of me going off on one that would just alienate people potential customers and many i'm sure many of the people who are listening to this podcast will be able to say they've stood in front of my stand at some stage and said i couldn't pay anything so small and i'll have gone well what do you normally paint and about 15 minutes later, they'll have walked away from the stand with a small pack of figures after being convinced to have a go. And you know yourself, you paint some, you handle the metal, the stuff gets into your bloodstream, and you're caught. It, that's just what happens. If, if you got angry at it and reacted angrily, I wouldn't be here. No, I suspect it would have driven you to an early grave, Peter, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, that, it's, it's sort of gone down into the mythos of of wargaming, hasn't it? The, uh, the the line of I couldn't possibly paint anything so small, and I know I know it gets uh, thrown back to you sometimes mischievously, uh, yes. by various people. I did I did write a blog entry uh, a couple of weeks ago to counter it and say I couldn't possibly paint anything so big. I'm trying to get that trend. <laughs> well, to be honest, that's pretty much the line I take when trying to deal with somebody. The conversation goes something along the lines of. I can paint anything so small, that's fine. What do you normally paint? Oh, I paint, you know, 28mm, that's fair enough. When was the last time you painted a unit? And then they'll look at you and they go, 
what do you mean? Would, when was the last time you finished, you know, unit 24 figures? And they'll mumble something. And I said, the last time you actually finished an army. And they'll look at the shoes. And I'll say, how many unfinished projects do you have lying around? Don't have time to get them painted. And you can usually play upon the fact that I know far more about what they will be going through in terms of painting yes. and how much is expected in, in terms of painting modern day big figures uh, than they know about painting little ones. I think so, you've probably won the argument at that point, haven't you? I can win the argument. I don't always win the, um, uh, win, win the whole point of the asking yes. questions. I mean, quite often I will make the point and go, oh, yes, well, but I prefer to the big figures anyway. We walk away. That's fair enough. At least if done the 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 honour of actually listening to what I've got to say, and if they weren't convinced, they weren't convinced. That's fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody. Uh, I don't expect to. It, it, painting big figures is tedious. The culture in in the hobby has changed to the point where the sort of paint job I did back when I used twenty five to mill figures of just slapping the paint on, get units on the table, and play a game is no longer acceptable. You have to aspire to the stuff you see in the glossy magazines. And people keep on doing that. And they're spending more and more of a time investment in pure and pure figures. Which brings us back to the start of this conversation. Yes. Why people are moving to skirmish gaming and away from large figure ga- large scale figure gaming. Absolutely. So the, the Joy 6 then grew out of this game day and has basically got bigger and bigger, hasn't it? And I, I know that... Over the years, you, there's been slightly different formats with when you started to introduce seminars and then uh, Dr. Mike came along and was uh, doing the painting clinic. And I think at one point, am I right in thinking that non-believers are allowed in free? Is that right? That's right. Um, well, you sort of touched upon one thing we've always tried to do with, uh, with Joy 6, is to make it different to normal war game shows, which... I'm sorry, I've got very formulaic and fairly boring. And to make it more interesting. So the seminars were a bit experimental. I mean, they've been having them in the States in their big conventions for donkey's years. And I've always thought it was a good idea uh, because it offers something a little different. So it uh, gives a session where we can interact directly with our customers in the Q&A session, as Peter and the Igor. And they're great fun. I mean, you, you've been to you've been yes. to at least one, haven't you? Yeah. And fairly knockabout, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, people try and ask us trick questions and we try and avoid answering them. It's a bit like trying to yes. pin down politicians. But they're very lighthearted. But it gives us a chance to work directly with our customers, our audience. And it's great. We really enjoy that. It's one of the joys of business is actually talking to people, uh, especially face-to-face. It's great. And then we've always tried to have something a little different, a little more interesting for an afternoon one. We've recently moved to a question time panel format, trying to get three luminaries in the hobby, people uh, who are known for something, uh, to actually then <laughs> sit down in front of a, another hostile audience and have questions thrown at them. The whole format can go absolutely anywhere. It's yeah. fairly loosely chaired uh, because we just want to hear people speak. Now, the problem, as you'll find, Sean, is the moment that you put yourself in the public eye uh, within the hobby, you tend to find yourself sequestered to this forum. So, Sean, I uh, <laughs> hope you haven't got anything booked for an hour next year. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. 
Yes. Uh, Sean will be appearing on next year's forum panel. Well I'll, done for that. Yes, I'll I'll practice my uh, inability to answer a question with a uh, a straight answer. Yes, yeah. I, Why ever uh, would you do that? Well, exactly. Yes, there's an art apparently, and I, th I think the panel actually did really well this year. Actually, no, had Per, per Broden on it. <laughs> we year, managed to keep it to an hour, didn't we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice one, Per. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so we've had that. We've always tried to. We have a, a raffle. Uh, we all the trades put something in, and the raffle helps from the show. We keep the price of the traders as low as we can. We keep the prices for the, the entry as low as we can. It doesn't make a profit. In fact, it didn't make a loss this year, which I think is about the first time. Oh, great. Uh, we, we don't run this show for a profit. We run this show for the sake of the show itself. The, the raffle people appreciate that. That means they stay to the end. And also the games. We get as many games as we can. The ratio of numbers of games to the number of people coming through the door is massive. It, it's, it's the best on the show circuit anywhere. We had 26 games at this show. We turned some away. Next year, we're going to have to take more space because already the first indication of the combined, we're going to have more next year. So we're going to have more of those. And we always encourage as many of those games as we can to be participation games. Having the big set pieces like pairs is brilliant. They're great, and there is always going to be a place for those. But we also want something for people to do. Yeah. And there were some, again, either very, very small games, but great fun to play, or some of the big, even some of the big set piece games, people could join in. And the advantage of that, as far as I'm concerned, people stay until four o'clock at this show when it closes. And to be honest, usually we're leaving them out half past four the time they've got to go home. And I don't know of any other show on the circuit that can actually offer that. I was just about to say, it's usually around about two o'clock things have thinned out, haven't they? And by three o'clock, uh, it's generally traders and friends and family that are left at shows these days. And it's an interesting point you make about the shows, because you're right that shows can become samey, can't they? Particularly if you travel to numerous shows throughout the year. If you stick it, stick to one or two, then you'll see some of those big set-piece games that invariably get the pictures in the in the glossy magazines. But if, if you go to more than that, then you do start to see the same old faces and the same old games, don't you? And it can become quite staid quite quickly. I'm not sure there's a show, regardless of the fact that Joe Six is a 6 mil themed show, I'm not sure there's another show on the circuit that does what Joe Six does. Uh, I can tell you because I, I do pretty well all all the major ones. No, there isn't. The I, I I see the shows, so I can hopefully bring the experience of what I see at shows and feed that back for good or ill into into Joy Six. The bits you don't see, we try and make it easy for the traders to get in and out. Some shows are better than that than others. We try and try and get that. We fall down in some areas. Our communication in various aspects is appalling. We, we there's always room to improve and we look to improve and every year we have the, the post-show meetings and try and make things better we succeed sometimes sometimes we don't but we are trying our hardest and people do appreciate that we don't have a massive club behind us you know this is basically done by two very small companies ourselves and, and emporium and some volunteers and some friends and families uh, and a big shirt shout out to to pair and his family because they help they all pitch in yeah. it's great uh, there's a lovely 
community family feel about it. I think I talked about this actually, and I couldn't quite put my finger on why it was. I've been to probably four Joy of Sixes now. I don't know if this is your first year at the current venue or not. No, it's we've been at that that particular building, I think, for about five years now. Right. But it's our second year in the location within the building that you were. Yes. In. Yes. That's that. Yes. So, so I have been to that building before, but not that that location. But I was trying to put my finger on why Joy of Six felt different because I've been travelling to war game shows for thirty odd years, north, south, east, and west across this fair land, and there's a definite atmosphere in the show, um, in the sense, and all I could put it down to is the fact that everybody is there uh, with six mil in common. There's a common theme running through it and a common interest that has pulled everybody from wherever they've come, from all over the world, actually, uh, into into the, those two or three rooms that you occupy. And there's that family-like buzz and atmosphere i can't quite i I can't put it into words but there's a definite difference to the joe six than any other show that i go to yeah i'd agree it's an intangible quality to the show there is uh and the word is buzz keep on using that i mean the irish might use the term crack there is something within the show uh, an ambience atmosphere which is unique and that is generated entirely by the guys putting the games on and the people attending. I, I think it's it's partly relief because nobody has to got to go, oh, they're easy to paint. It doesn't take that long. No, you don't go blind to anybody in the room. Yes. <laughs> the questions that get asked of you are, uh, uh, questions, how did you make a train piece? That looks great. How do you do that? Yeah, yeah. So it's people asking intelligent questions and relevant questions or just appreciating what you do. Yeah, I don't think I've seen so many smiles on on people's faces. It's uh, you're right. It's an intangible. It's yes. an intangible that uh, uh, the atmosphere in, in the room is is unlike anything. It's uh, and one of the questions I was going to ask you actually, because I know that you do an incredible amount of shows over the course of the year, so you'll have that perspective and the number of years that you've been travelling to these shows. Where do you see the show scene at the minute in the UK? Very good question. I think some of the smaller shows really need to have a, a think. I, I, in terms of format, in terms of what they're doing, they're doing exactly the same as they did 20 years ago. Now, that may have worked 20 years ago, but it isn't actually going to expand the show. It isn't going to make the show distinctive. It isn't going to make the show grow maybe they don't want it to grow or, or maybe it just reflects the horizons that the organizers are looking at but to my mind you've got to keep a, a constant renewal yeah and they they're not looking to do that they're just filling the function that they originally started with the breather originally started with now if you do that you end up like poor old sheffield triples uh, which was once a massive, massive two-day show, uh, one of the biggest in the country. But the guys who were running it were trying to do things like they'd done in the 1990s. They had a couple of bad years, and because they had a couple of years, they, they spiralled out of existence, really. People stopped turning up, traders stopped turning up, people stopped trading up because traders weren't turning up, and, and they disappeared. 
So I think personally, if, if I think some of the organisers need to take a long, hard look at the show and, and shake them up a little bit. Triples is one of those shows, isn't it? It's one. Of, it was one of the staples of the show calendar. Yes, I know that from the club where I am in Stoke, a good seven or eight of us would travel both days from Stoke to Sheffield, which is close on a two-hour journey each way. But we would travel up there both days because it, there was such a buzz about the show. There was demonstrations, there was participation games. All of the major traders were there. There was usually a good, very good bring them by. And there was nooks and crannies, wasn't there, in that old venue? Yes, I don't quite remember what the name of the what was the name of the venue. It was it was, it was Sheffield University Students Union. Yes, the, the Octagon. Yeah. The Octagon. There you go. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. But post the move to that new venue at the Sports Hall, I can remember going and we talk about the shows fizzing out after sort of two o'clock. I think by twelve o'clock on the Sunday, there was barely anybody left in the hall. And it just seemed to plummet uh, like a stone. And, uh, you know, I, d- I don't know what the politics were behind the, the organisers and the club and the venue or whatever, but it was such a shame because for many years, Triples was an absolute staple on our calendar. Well, yeah, I mean, it's my hometown show. Yeah. And, and, and it, was, it was awful to be sitting on the sidelines and, and seeing, it, seeing it go down. It's like watching a slow motion train wreck. Having seen that, that's something I was determined will never happen to uh, to Joss, to Joe Six. You you learn from that. I think I think a few other clubs ought to look at that. And you know, I'm not saying wholesale change for every show. That they might be carrying on absolutely fine within the brief they want to do, but you can see it as a potential happening. It it will only need to have a bad year for a show, and the next year. A few of the primary traders don't turn up. And you need the primary traders, the, the manufacturers, yes. not, not the guys reselling vast amounts of plastic Perry stuff. You, you want the guys who make things, the innovators. And then you'll find that less people are turning up to attend the show because their favourite traders aren't there. And then the traders go, well, there's less people by spending money with us. It's not really worth a candle of going to that show. And then the people are going to the show, notice there's less traders, and it can just disappear within two years. Yeah. So you, you, you cannot be assured of anything in this, in this life. And uh, a reinvention, uh, a look at doing things, just trying to do things a bit differently. Yeah, from, from your own perspective then, do you think that the internet has had a huge impact on, on the trade shows or are people spending more or less money at the shows now from a sort of business owner? perspective how's that gone well it's hard to say i I would say that takings at shows have not risen in the same way that takings to mail order has mail order has shot through the roof shows hasn't but at the same time you could take that uh, into account by the fact that two-thirds of what we sell now goes overseas so almost by definition expansion in that area which is what we have done isn't going to have any effect on uk-based shows but yes certainly the internet and, and, and mail order sales means that you don't look at shows as being massive cash cows nowadays. It's the uh, shop window, is it? The, the, it is a shop window. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the biggest thing for me is um, it enables me to talk to existing customers and that reinforces a, a, a relationship because it's a relationship. It isn't just a, a financial transaction. 
with the people who, who buy things from us and also enables me to talk to potential new customers and I'll reference the earlier conversation we had yeah. uh, it enables me to get my new product out in front of people in the flesh you know you can see as many pretty pictures or as pretty pictures as I can take of new items but actually seeing them in the cabinet and I'm sure you'd say the same is, is completely different yes so I can get that as well uh, people quiz me about what's coming out in an informal manner and, and, and speak directly and, and get information. So I think they're invaluable. Uh, we, we do 15 shows a year and each one has a place. Each one enables me to talk to and, 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 and see a different clientele. And I enjoy them. I used to have a smile on my face, I hope. You know, sometimes they get a bit boring, but I, I, I try and enjoy them because they are a, a week out and we can help. I can't see in terms of sales as, as massive, massive increases. Uh, I think there will be inevitable increases as, as we sell more to uh, a wider range of people. Yes. But any business operating as, as we are, you stand up all by mail order. It's what goes on behind the scenes, not up front, that yeah. counts. My uh, chin hit the floor a little bit at that statistic that two-thirds of your products go overseas oh okay yeah that, that's I, I did not expect that if you asked me for a percentage i would have said 20 percent maybe but good grief two-thirds of your product goes overseas that is incredible yeah. uh yeah it's, it's it's the big growth area for us and i hope it will continue to be it's it's a harder market many ways for us to reach because we can't do the going to a show and talking to people but at the same time yeah, it grows very very steadily I would say the internet has got uh, a lot to do with that. I mean, email correspondence with the chaps who do the Little Wars TV. Undoubtedly, the uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, videos that they've done featuring Six Ball uh, Games as Razor Profile, and I think has resulted in at least two orders that I know of coming from the States. So that, that's, that's a, a definite trend and, and something that you have to take into account. They are incredible, aren't they? The uh, the production values of that YouTube channel is just outstanding for um, what is a hobby channel, essentially. They're it's, nice guys as well. I'm, yeah, really, I'm, so nice. I'm really hoping to get Greg, uh, who wrote Ultra Freedom. I've, I've, I've reached out to him. He's agreed to come on the show. It's just one of those scheduling things we need to get sorted. So uh, hopefully it'll be... that, don't we? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, the old real life uh, kicks in. I'm just conscious of the time, Peter. I don't, I don't want you to keep you all night, but because we have got quite a few questions I want to throw at you, and your adoring audience will uh, demand that each one of these is answered in turn. Um, but just on the future then of uh, Joy of Six, at what stage do you start, do you start planning uh, for yourself for next year? And have you got any sort of big plans or ideas or teasers that you can give us as to what's coming for Joy of Six 2020? There's going to be more games. We know that. To be honest, we take a holiday from Joy of Six for three to four months after we finish the show, uh, usually because we're either then on holiday and then we're hitting the autumn show season, so we're on up our feet with those. You can expect more of the same but better, I think, is, is what we'll give you there. We're going to be taking over more space. We know this is inevitable. So the room where we had the seminars, which you all know, is available to us to actually uh, occupy and put more games and traders in. Yeah. So uh, we will hire that. I mean, a, a bit of extra cost. Uh, 
a lot of extra cost, but we'll, we'll find out. We'll sort that one out. So we'll be increasing the floor space by about 25%, which I think we'll need to accommodate people. And that, that I think that's going to be the biggest thing. So the show will get larger. Turned away gamers, we turned away traders last year or this year. Uh, I really don't want to be in that situation again next year. Excellent. Well, that'll be something to look forward to. Um, as soon as that uh, form comes out, I'm throwing in uh, an application myself to put on a game. So uh, I need an early heads up. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, you'll need to clear the space in your diary, certainly from about uh, two o'clock to three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, okay. Um, I will be bringing a couple of people with me who can babysit it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'll be, in, I'll be dressed in my best bib and tucker uh, to make Very myself good. presentable. Right. If it's okay with you, Peter, then I'll I'll just move on to uh, some questions because um, I'm I'm quite overwhelmed actually by the amount of people that have answered the the call for questions within the last two hours. So I'm sorry, I've now got a visual picture of a mob waving <laughs> pitchforks with burning torches. <laughs> so uh, I'll I'll go to Facebook first. I put I put the call out across Twitter and Facebook, and you'll recognise some of these names. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. as, uh, as we go through. But the first question is from Jonathan Ellison. And he says, is it true that you are developing a Plains War range? And if so, when will it be released? And will it include Indians with bows on foot and on horseback? Right. <laughs> now, I know the answer to this because you've already discussed it, but I'll let you uh, speak on that. Yeah, the answer is yes, we will be doing a range. In, in fact, to be honest, the first figures out with sculpt, sculpting as we speak, I'm expecting them back soon. Uh, we're doing this as a companion to a, a side project outside of Backers I've got of reprinting the Pony Wars rules by Ian Beck. So, yes, we're doing them in Plains Wars, but these are Hollywood. The, the, these, these are John Ford Western cowboys and Indians. You know, it, it, is, it is not going to be strictly historical range. I'm sure people will be able to use them for that and ignore the fact that we've got all the troopers with big yellow neckerchiefs and white braces and and things like that. I thought what are the Indians could be armed with, I couldn't tell you at this stage. I will tell you after done my research by watching uh, the horse soldiers uh, and then the, the Rio Grande Cavalry Trilogy. Yeah, yeah, you know the ones. Yes. I'll sit down, watch all black and white movies, get a few stills, and at that stage I can tell you exactly what they'll be armed with and what they look like. So I hope that answers your question, Jonathan. Uh, and you can do your own research and watch those John Ford Westerns and that'll, that'll tell you what's going exactly. on. Yep. Okay, uh, next one is from Austin Hunt. Now, this is an interesting one. Uh, could you be talked into making some Cold War gone hot Arab-Israeli or other moderns once their World War II range is fleshed out? And also, a thank you for the World War I range. It's fantastic. In, and in my opinion, the best sub 28 mil World War One models out there. Well, I, I'll, I'm just going to add a little caveat to that. I'd say they're the best World War One models, regardless of scale. But uh, yes, yeah, so Austin is, is asking about some uh, Cold War gone hot ranges. I'll just say, if I had any sense of shame now, I'd be blushing. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, this isn't a video cast, so you're pretty yeah. safe there. Okay, well, well, thank you both for those compliments. Um, uh, whether I agree with them or not, but thank you very, very much. I'm sure you're far too modest to comment. Are we going to... 
I couldn't give you an answer at this rate, at this at this stage, uh, with regards to post Second World War, because the project is so vast. I am not looking beyond there. We're not doing the the World War Two range piecemeal. We're not doing cherry picking. We're, we're going to do a proper comprehensive World War Two range. That means it's going to take time and it's going to be big. We're looking at something of a time span of at least five years. And while I do long-term planning, I'm not looking further than that. Doing post-World War II 20th century conflicts is an obvious next step. But whether that goes Korea or Vietnam or hypothetical Cold War in Europe, Arab-Israeli, I I couldn't tell you. Um, We haven't even thought that way. I mean, I had a guy today ask me when are we going to be covering uh, Pacific Theatre, US Marine Corps and Japanese. I must admit, I hadn't even thought about doing those at this stage. I think they may have asked the question because I've definitely seen something requesting the Pacific. So oh, well, I'll, I'll cover that in more detail when you get that question. But I, I, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to back your question away. It's just that I, I couldn't. It's almost like asking me, "What will I do when flying saucers invade?" I don't know. I've not even thought about that. It, it'll just have to wait till it happens. Uh, Ollie Gibson. More fantasy, please. I'd like to do Kings of War 3 and Sex, Six Mill. Sex? Six Mill, sorry. You are knocking on an open door. I do intend, as I've said this publicly before, I do intend to expand the fantasy range at some time. Uh, it's a case of getting the resources free in terms of the sculpts and time, the moulding time and everything else. Uh, we, we do have our hands very full with a uh, proposed plan for all of the historicals. But I do want to do it. The, the current fantasy range... Is, is a product of my now grown up uh, son when he was about eight going, Dad, will you do me some fantasy? Will you do me some goblins? Will you? Will you? Will you? If you've ever had an eight year old who's obsessed by something, he didn't shut up until I said, OK, OK, sit down, I'll do them. Um, and I sculpted to his design, pure to his design, some goblins, some elves, some dwarves, very whimsical, very not serious. And, and they stayed there ever since. But it was never meant to be a proper big fantasy range. It's it's something we will do. And we, when we do it, we'll do it properly. Just give me a bit of time. I've, I've got a lot of sort of like Plains War stuff to get out of the way first. I will warn you, Peter, that there's a common theme to a lot of these questions. <laughs> and I suspect, <laughs> I suspect the answer's going to be roughly the same. But uh, okay. we'll, we'll, go, we'll go through them. I don't, I don't want you to have a heart attack at all this... Uh, demanding oh, I'm, for I'm, a new I'm range. used to it i'm used to it. bring it on bring it on bring it on right so uh, next so i hope that's answered your question ollie moving on to christopher dingwell this is an interesting one actually uh, the big display units for english civil war look amazing does peter have a preferred rule set for potentially using them in a game well yeah they're, they're actually polymorph bases the way the polymorph system works is it doesn't matter what size base you have Everything is measured in base widths and base depths. And the suggested bases that we use in the rules are 60 by 30. It doesn't matter, provided you've got two to one printage. So people have interpreted that as either 40 by 20 or 60 by 30, the one we, we push as a standard, or 80 by 40. I just tweaked it a bit. Just a touch. Just a touch. And that the, the big ECW bases are 20 centimetres by 10 centimetres. And, and, and I have got a project which is 
similar way in the back of my mind. I, I want to produce set of 30 years war rules. And I want to do a game to go along with them. Now, each one of those bases that you've seen in two bases is, is a battalion of 500 men. And an infantry brigade is represented by three or four of those. And you have between eight and ten infantry brigades on uh, an army. And then something similar in horse. And, and, and I'm, as I've probably said before, I'm very dangerous when I have a plan. That's, that's that may be down the line. But yeah, in answer to the first, yes, Polymos. Polymos English of War rules are designed for use with bases measuring two to one ratio, which is exactly what you have there. So 20 by 10 or however big you are. I was quickly trying to do the mathematics and um, my O-level maths failed me <laughs> at how many figures you're talking about for that 30 years war game. But it's more than a few, isn't it? it, it it's one or two, yes. It's yep. one or two. It, Good grief. There's roughly 200 infantry figures on each of the bases. Oh, my gosh. That is a and big... A, and a horse unit will have... Now, let's see, six, uh, 36, about 60 figures on it. That's a, that's a decent sized unit, Peter. I, I remember the old website actually used to have, used to keep track of one or two of these absolutely huge projects that people would be doing. So there's the huge Edge Hill game, wasn't there, at uh, Triples mm-hmm. many years ago with goodness knows how many figures on the table with that one thousand figures in that one. Oh my gosh and then the, the rather large Taunton project as well that rory put together with uh, with many a friend that was also impressive but lost count on that one yeah i mean that that's what people do in six mil once they get an idea into their head <laughs> right uh mr tom davis he says i'd like to thank you uh, for having such great product and also raising the profile of six mil through the joy of six. I'd like to ask what are some of the games he's played that have been enjoyable or, or exciting for him? And what is the high point for you over the years with uh, Bacchus's growth? Well, thank you, Tom, for two questions, which have probably left me speechless, which is something that not many people have achieved. Uh, I've got to say, most of my big, fun, exciting games were done many, many years ago in the company of my great mates, Ian, Mike and John. The four of us. Ian is Ian Beck, the guy who wrote the Pony Wars rules, and, and he just did such quirky, off-the-wall, silly games, uh, which weren't mainstream Pony Wars, chariot racing. The thing that I remember about all of these was not so much the game, and I think a lot of people relate to this, but the people you were. And, and being in the moment. I've had some really good games. It's just hard to, hard to say. It's not to me about the games. It's about the relationships with the people you're dealing with. It was across the table, whether it's a massive, like we did massive refights with Auschwitz. But even the rules, the rules don't mind, don't matter. Not even the size of figures, it's the people. Yeah. And, and it would be impossible for me to list all of those. Now, I sound like I'm wriggling out of the question. The most ridiculous game, I'll give you the most ridiculous game I've ever played. Years ago, I wrote a set of skirmish rules for English Civil War called Once Upon a Time in the West Country. Still got the figures for that somewhere. Re- really nice, simple set of rules, very easy to play. At the time, I was doing English Civil War reenactment. And unbeknownst to me, a group of my mates uh, got up to an EW event I was at. And during downtime, they all tooled it with their kit walked in the middle of the field and produced a giant pair of dice. 
and they then divided it into two pairs and proceeded to fight each other, pretending to be toy soldiers at realistic distances with an umpire rolling dice between them. Oh, that's, uh, that's probably one of the craziest games I've ever been involved with. Yeah, it wasn't the rules, it wasn't the figures, it was just the people and the person yeah. time. So enjoy the social bit of your gaming because that's what it's all about. In terms of watching Bacchus grow, it, it's, it's a harder one because you don't notice it as such. I mean, there are milestone events. There are milestone events like when we were, first went full-time, when we moved from basically casting out of uh, a garage, a garden shed, and going to proper premises, adding, I don't know, just just extra people to the organisation. Uh, we, we have four people working for us full-time, but there's, I would say, 20-odd people who do things on a freelance basis for, for the company and watching them come along and being part of it. It, it, it's, it is a very much a family thing. It, it, at work, it's, it's a very relaxed atmosphere. It's, it's very unstructured and very irreverent. So, so feeling part of something like that is, is, is a great thing. Yeah, and I'm watching the increasing acceptance of, of, of Six Mind the Hobby and what we do being taken more seriously and, and less disdainfully by more and more people has also been nice to see. The fact that I'm chatting to yourself and you're going to, you feel that there is a need for a six-mile dedicated podcast, that's great. It's lovely to see people picking at the back and running with it. Uh, Pear Broden's wonderful games. It's just people going off in all different directions. All we do is we make a bit of lead that people paint, but they then do great things and then come back and show us. It's wonderful. I feel as though you're underplaying your part a little there, Peter, but uh, you're right that the, the community... The community wouldn't be there without the figures, let's say that. I'm not saying that backers are the only producer. There's many a good producer of six mil figures out there, absolutely. But Yes, yes. Um, but uh, without you making the figures, then we would never have had the rather large Towton or the, the huge Edge Hill game or Pears or Roberts uh, huge uh, displays. So, um, yeah, it, it must be it must be great to be in your shoes and... Uh, having been at that entry point where uh, I was listening to the Hen- uh, your podcast with Henry, where you're first making some buildings uh, and scenery and then got into the sculpting and then going full time and, and to being where you are now. So hats off to you there. Uh, next question then is from, uh, in fact, the next two, I think you've probably already answered during the cast, but we'll just mention them. There's Jack. Now I'm going to try and pronounce this na- name as Diomedi, Jack Diomedi, yeah. something similar to that. Hi, Jack. Uh, do you know Jack? <laughs> We've corresponded. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, you may know then that he's, he's asking about a War of the Rings range. Now, I'm sure that there's an IP issue around uh, that if we're referring to the Lord of the Rings, and I know you've already discussed the fantasy range that you intend to grow, but any comment on the War of the Rings? If I can spell ring, W-R-I-N-G, yes. we can get somewhere with this. Well, uh, yeah, and I'll, re- I'll refer to my, to my early question. I, yes, at some stage, and it will be near in tone to, to a, a Tolkien Middle-earth yes. view of uh, fantasy than so my, my current rather comic book view of it all. It, um, it's just a case of me getting the sculpting time to actually go through this and to clear a space in, in a very, very crowded historical schedule I and mean, historical ranges and what we plan to do with those is, is very very full 
Now that may mean eventually me getting a third sculptor in. Let's see how that happens. You're asking a question to which I'm trying to give a positive answer. Uh, it, it is an open door you're pushing at. It's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Good, good. And I think that's all we can ask for. Moving on to Charles Roundtree. Big thank you for organising the Joe of Six. What did you hope for when you first started the Joe of Six and how do you feel it's gone? And what does he hope it will develop in the next few years? And we've already talked about Joe Six, but um, if I, I guess if you were to wave a, a magic wand and you had unlimited time, unlimited resources, where do you see Joe of Six? Okay. What I would like Joe of Six to be is, is two things. And, and one, I think it's already well on the way to doing that. And one is, is, is a coming together of guys who appreciate the scale to just enjoy themselves. And I, I think we're well on the way to achieving that aim. The second is, and then and then we're less advanced down this road, is it to become a showcase for six mil for the rest of the hobby. The aim was never to have a little ghetto we could all come to, huddle together and, and feel safe from all the big bad guys who didn't like us. The, the aim was for us to actually show what we can do and then bring the rest of the World Games community and say, oh, look what you're missing. Look what we can do. We're beginning to open the door on that. We've had coverage of last year's Joe 6. That was covered in Miniature Wargames. We're going to get coverage of this year's Joe 6 in Wargame Soldier Strategy. So we're getting out there and conscious of the glossy magazines. Um, Pear Broden it seems to get it absolutely everywhere. And again, people appreciating what he does for the quality of what he does, not necessarily because it's in six mils. It's again, it's encouraging a wider acceptance of what we're doing for its own sake within the larger world community. I think the increased interest in six mil of recent, I think that may also be a, a partial spin off from Jos. So we, we've got all of these things. I seem to remember you doing a giveaway uh, offer, a small pack of figures back in the day, didn't you? Back on, uh, oh, God, must be 10 years ago now, I guess. But uh, anybody who was a, a skeptic would could write into you and you'd send them an army free, so long as they then blogged about it and painted it up. Yes, yeah, I've done that a couple of times. Uh, again, just, just, just trying to just whip up a bit of interest and support. Yes, just small army packs to people. They had to be self-professed. I don't want to paint anything like this. I couldn't, I couldn't paint it, is what I was after. The improviser was, all they had to do was paint it, one unit of infantry, one of cavalry, one of artillery, as a minimum, yes. and then write it up. Every time I did it, I got pretty much every pack snapped up very, very quickly, and I spent the next three months telling people that they couldn't have one because they're too late. And I got, I think, if I sent out 10 packs, I'd get seven people who actually followed through and wrote about it. And what I did say to them was I would write, I would publish on the site exactly what they said. They said they couldn't possibly paint them and the figure themselves were just misshapen piles of metal and why did they ever try this? I would promised I would actually publish that. And everything, again, everyone I got back was overwhelmingly positive, saying, I'm actually quite surprised how much detail there is in the figures, how easy they are to paint, how nice the end result is. And some of them actually became customers, which is never a bad thing. Not at all. 
Okay, so uh, just two, a couple more questions on Facebook. Uh, we've got one from Les Hammond. I think you've already answered this already, but uh, hello to Les. I met Les at uh, the show on Sunday with his Terrain Shed product, uh, which was very nice. He says, a lot of people are wondering when the web shop front will reopen. I'm sure Peter is doing his best to get everything fixed. Okay, the plan is to have the web shop open. Gonna hate saying this on the third of September. This podcast will be out before then, so <laughs> hopefully that news will get out. It should be out in the in the next four or five days. So uh... I'm just going to interrupt you here. I am going on holiday from this Saturday to the following Saturday. So if anybody wants to ask me by email or phone when the web court is opening, you can all do so during that weekend on holiday. I'll get an answer. Well, I'll I'll put this out, and that can be your placeholder statement, I guess. <laughs> right. So, uh, Philip Page asks, uh, "I'd like to know what got him into gaming, and why he got into six mil, please." Uh, there's an easy question for you. Oh, twenty words or less. Part of the mists of time. Get the get the twirly music going. I think, like every small. Boy of, of my era, you know, you you've all got perfect soldiers and you throw marbles at them and slam paint when you're on them when when you when you're younger. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about when I was eight or eight or nine. Yeah. And I was at school one day, and a friend of mine said uh, brought some stuff in that, that some toy soldiers. Oh, I used to have those. He said, oh yeah, I play games with them. Where's that? Oh, well, there's a club in town. So I went along, and it's like. Addiction, it's just just straight in there, playing with toy soldiers. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life, and I want to make my living out of it. <laughs> yes, sir. So I think did, that's did a ray of light come down and shine on you, Peter? I think say, it must have this done. is your it future. Was just like this, this is it. Yeah, oh, it's great. That that's what happened. I I, I joined Halifax War Games Club. And I think I could have only been maybe eleven or twelve, and and basically stuck with it ever since. Is, is that club still going? Oh, yeah, it is, yeah, yeah, it's still going. Um, there's some very, very good friends there, and yeah, and set me off on the path I, I, I followed for the rest of my life, really. Excellent, and it's still uh, ongoing. Still ongoing, yes, the journey continues, the stories continue to be written. Yes, uh, and long may they continue to be. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, with regards to six mil, fair accident. Uh, I recounted this story in Henry's podcast, so I'll try and make this a bit bit quicker. But in a period of redundancy, I was trying to earn some money. This is back in the 1980s. And I, I tried to do this by building bespoke custom models which of houses because I could build houses. I was, I was really good at with scenics. And nobody was prepared to pay the going rate for my time doing one of those. So I hit upon the idea of just making one model and making a mould of it casting the resin and then selling the models on, which seemed a better business model. But I was unemployed. I, I was absolutely flat broke, and I could not afford the capital investment in uh, rubber and resin to make moulds and casts of 28 mil buildings, or 25 mil buildings, as it would have been back then. And I couldn't do it for 15s, which is a scale I was also used to. So eventually I had to slim it and make some 6 mil stuff. And then, then that's when the, the, the little shaft of life sort of hit me because it enabled me to start making 17th, 18th century 
Vauban style fortifications with the, the bastions and the curtain walls and the glasses. All this sort of thing has fascinated me for years before. And I found that here's finally the way I can do siege warfare, something I'd always wanted to do. I could actually get things which looked nice. I'd got stuff from Irregular and, and I'd paid some of those. And I thought, actually, this works really nicely. And it all moved on from there. It, it is a longer story. And, and say, if you go to Henry Hyde's podcast, I think I go to it in quite quite some detail there. Henry grilled me quite strongly on that one. He did. It's highly recommended. I, I put up a link uh, to Henry's uh, podcast uh, in the last one that I released because, uh, yeah, it's, it's well worth a listen. Am I imagining this, or did you have? Did you ever trade with those buildings? Because I've I've got a dim distant memory of seeing them at the very old Derby show at the assembly rooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's what got me going. Um, in fact, if, if anybody ever comes to my to the tours of the, the workshop we do every year on the, the Saturday before June 6, one of the things that you get in your goodie bag to go away with is a copy of one of the very, very first Bacchus catalogues. Oh, wow. And all it lists is, is resin buildings, and I have some examples of the original buildings there to show people. Brilliant. You've heard that here then, folks. Next year, it's the day before Joe 6, isn't it? Yeah, um, the uh, the Bacchus Grand Tour. I've been on it myself. It's well worth a peek behind the curtain uh, to see what the wizards are doing. <laughs> right, Trevor Crook. Then that last question from Facebook. Uh, Hi, Trevor. Trust uh, you to get the last word. Yes, P- you'll like this one, Peter. Peter's New Year missive is always eagerly awaited. What's the closest he has ever gotten to achieving his plans for the coming year? <laughs> there's a, and there's a couple of laughing emoticons on that one. <laughs> I think the most accurate prediction I've ever made was the fact that I got the date right for the following year. Ah, well done. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I think we can leave it there, can't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Consider it an aspiration rather than a prediction. <laughs> Excellent. I'm not, I won't ask you for the lottery numbers then for next week. Yeah, I wouldn't know. No. Uh, okay, just a few left on Twitter then. One or two questions. Um, not sure who this person is. Some some guy called Pear Roller One. I, I, I don't know if he's a thing in the hobby or not, but um, he's written uh, Great North War Charging. Tell Peter what a bloody fantastic range the Scanian War is or Scanian War. Scanian War. Sconiusk, or whatever he calls it. There you go. <laughs> so, Great North War charging. I, I assume you've had a conversation about this. Yes, uh, Pear and I share a fascination in the Great North War. Uh, I, I made the Great North War range before I met Pear. Pear came along and went, "That's somebody who knows about Swedish history. Nobody knows about Swedish history. Why are you doing this? Talk to me." Well, it stops um, the tabber, doesn't it? Well, yeah, well, don't mention that to Pear. You will be in trouble, trust me. <laughs> just kidding, Pear. Just kidding. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's a period that's always fascinated me. Our Great North War range is currently in real need of TLC. The moulds are reaching the end of their life. And had the Pony Wars range not come in place, they would have been to do free sculpting. And in chatting to Pear, I did mention that in terms of the we're going to do Great North War Swedish infantry charging in full 
it's called GoPro mode, means fall on. So it's basically or Gapar, as I read it, but yes, you've got the correct it, pronunciation. <laughs> uh, and and they charge waving sharp edged weapons and screaming Nordic insults at Russians who then promptly run away. And I, yeah, I'm going to do these. It's been a long held plan of mine to do, and I know that he'd like to have some being Swedish and all that. Yes. So yeah, it's a great idea. I just need the time to execute it. I know. I will just emphasise the. Uh, I know that uh, pairs referred to it as the Scanian Sconian War. <laughs> Correct me again, there, Peter. I can't quite. Remember. It's got the um, bubble over the over the A. Ah, there, there we go. Um, but it's also it's it's League of Augsburg, Irish Rebellion. There's lots of things that can be done, isn't there, with that range? It's a bit of a jack of all trades range. Yes, built uh, in that gap between about 1660 and. 1695, 1700. Yes, it covers a multitude of sins. Yes, but uh, heartily recommended people to go and have a look at that. Then I've got a question from, and this is another difficult one for my um, Pottery's dialect, is Cohen de Smet. Uh, I'm, oh, I'm sure... hi, Cohen. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. Yes, you'll, you'll probably recognise most of these people. But um, he says, ask him about zombie dinosaurs, honestly. Oh, dear. Um, most of that conversation took place in a bar in uh, Antwerp last year, and I cannot for the life of me remember anything about it apart from zombie dinosaurs. That's it. That's really all you need to know about that. Well, I'm hoping to be in a bar in Antwerp this year, uh, and if, if you're there, I'll buy you a drink, Peter, and we can talk about zombie oh. dinosaurs. Whether I'm there or not, all depends on circumstances under my control. Yes, yes, me, you and me both, you and me yeah. both, and we, we won't say any more about that. Yeah. But hopefully, hopefully we'll both be in a bar in Antwerp. Hopefully sanity uh, will reign, and yes, we'll both be in a bar in Antwerp. Yes, discussing zombie dinosaurs. Mm. Um, Mike Hobbs, we all know Mike, don't we, I'm the Welsh me. wizard? Yep. Any chance of a full release of World War II Russian infantry being released in the next month? None whatsoever. <laughs> I, I can't help but laugh at most of these questions. <laughs> I've told him this. We are doing Soviets. Yes. But where are you Soviets? Once I've got Northwest Europe nice and neatly done under my belt. Patience, Mike. Yeah, patience. <laughs> Uh, okay, moving on, we've got Battlebrush Studios. Thanks for the excellent service and miniatures. If you were free to do any range of figures Bacchus doesn't do yet, what would it be? He's asking two questions as well, but I'll let you answer that for, that one first. Any range of figures that we've done. It's almost an opening question. It's anything we haven't done yet. Any period of history you haven't done yet, yes. Period of... Hmm. Well, to be honest, I, I would have to say the one we're currently involved with, which is World War II, it, it's been the big gap in our range for well over a decade, the one that people have always been asking us for. And that's that's sort of, we're doing the big gap, if you see what I mean. Yes. We're already well into that process. Um, it's, it's lots of little things that I've always wanted to do. The Sun King's War range we've talked about, it's that yeah. nice little infill stuff. Some other little stuff in it at the moment. I'm, I'm, I want to bring the me, the medieval range up to date. I want to do a fantasy range. I really do want to do a fantasy range and, and, and bring that in. Uh, I want to do Russian Civil War. 
Mercury's going to do armoured trains. I want to do... I could carry on going like this all evening. I've got two words for you. Can I throw two words well, to you? Please? Yeah. Crimean War. Oh, oh. Strange enough, that doesn't figure on my list of things I want to do. Uh, I, I think you're breaking up, Peter. I didn't quite get that answer. <laughs> I, I tell five or six people every week by email, there's just no demand whatsoever at all for a Crimean War range. <laughs> no, to, to, yes, no demand, no. no. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll take I'll take that as the definitive answer from the. No, the now. definitive answer for you on the Crimean War range is one word, which is eventually. Okay, okay, we've got time. We've got time. Uh, the second part of uh, of Battlebrush Studios' question is: What's the most exotic request for a miniatures range you have ever got? Exotic, uh, obscure. Asian armies, which I've never heard of, and I think I think they've only ever existed in the pages of a DBM army list. I get those on a fairly regular basis. Odd science fiction stuff from science TV, science fiction TV series, I get asked for. Amazons, I, naked Amazons, I get asked for on a fairly regular basis. And I only do clothed ones, you see. Yes, well, there you go. <laughs> Historically accurate. Oh, yes, we'll drag it, draw a bit over that one. No. I'll, I'll add one question in there, actually. Um, what is the strangest order you have ever received? Whether it be by the size or the mixture, or have you, have you got something that sticks had, in your mind? Yeah, I once I wanted one guy which, which I had to refuse, which was uh, a guy sent me a list of, it must have been over three, three and a half pages of fool's cap. Um, that's A4 lined. Um, I'll tell you about in the States. I don't know what it is in their legal letter. Just, just close ruled paper, handwritten, listing codes from the catalogue. And he was demanding that I supply one strip from each of these packs and that I send them to him with a bill and then he would send me a check for the value. Interesting. What, what happened to that uh, letter? It was filed under WPB. <laughs> uh, short for waste paper. Yes. I have one of those filing uh, systems at work, yes. I, I'm, I'm sorry. There, there, there are limits. Yeah. It's all about, uh, I mean, there is a saying, the customer is always right, but in that case, I'm not so sure. But the customer's right, you just haven't realised how to be right in the correct yes. way. Yes, there you go, there you go. That's the diplomatic answer. Uh, okay, so uh, that's Battlebrush Studios. Dave Hiscox, or Hiscox, mm. says, uh, could you ask Peter how he came up with the Bacchus basing technique? I now use this with all of my models. Um, I can't take any credit for that whatsoever. That was my eldest son, Chris's contribution. Uh, I was sort of just sat down one night laboriously doing some basing on, on my little toys and he said, Dad, Dad, why are you doing it like that? Do it like this. And it's actually, again, credit where credit's due, apparently it's something he picked up at his local games workshop. Ah. And he said, play like that. I'm like, well, that's not going to work unless you have the right components because the stuff you've got, because he was doing GW28s, it's not going to work with the little ones. 
So I said, well, let's try and just get some bits and, and it and it worked. And it was never done for a backspacing system like it is now. This was done so that my display figures would look better. And I put them in the cabinet, and then it's like all these things. People get said, well, how do you do that? So I, I just thought, well, I might as well just put it together in a box, and then that stops you having to answer silly questions about how you get it from various places, just put it all together in one box. And it became an instant hit, absolutely took us back. And I was having to suddenly go straight back to home with a Guys just find me all the bits because I have to assemble the bits in from different places and, and order vast quantities more because everything I've got gone. Uh, and, it, and it still sells, it still sells in, in big quantities, not just to six wheel gamers, it, it sells right across the board to any scale. Uh, amazing, it took me by surprise. Well, it's a great one stop shop, isn't it, though? And it's sort of, it's, it, it just makes it so easy. I've, I've got it. I've got the the box in front of me with the uh, the triad of paints and the the very fine sand and the the very short static grass. It's uh, it it just it does what it says. It's a very simple idea that it's probably so simple that nobody else thought of it. Yeah. It's one of those things that's so obvious you can't see the wood for the trees. I guess, but yeah. Before I don't mind about what you're in, your listeners do. I, I would get my figures, stick them on a the base, get some. Tetrina polyfill, put that on, just wait for that all to dry, watch it crack, and then I put some sand on and sort of stick it so it wouldn't, and then I dry brush that, and, I, and and it was just tedious. With this, you put the sand on, the brown stuff on, you dry brush, you flock, boom, done. Yeah. It looks better, and it's, and it's quicker. And, it's incredibly easy. And of course, you've got the magic, haven't you? I do have the magic. You've got, You've got the up foot as well, haven't you? Uh, I don't know if you heard me talking to uh, Neil and Mike on the Meeples and Miniatures podcast, but I did describe it as um, an almost transcendental moment where I was handing you money for uh, some figures and you you said some words of magic and suddenly I got this thing in my hand and I thought, what on earth have I bought here? <laughs> but... It absolutely works. I, uh, I've used it religiously. It's an incredible little bit of kit, isn't it? That that off puff or off a puff or. Um... <laughs> if any of your listeners have got kids and they've watched the Night Garden on uh, CBBS, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, yes, I've I've sat through yeah. many hours of Night Garden. Well, it, it, it it's Macapaka's off puff. Yes. Shall we describe what it is, Peter? <laughs> it's it's basically a plastic bellows. Yes. But the great thing about it is you put the, the static grass you use in the body of the bellows, uh, give it a bit of shake, and that means you've got a static charge on the grass, on the nylon strand on the grass. So when you then squeeze the bellows and puff it out of the bottom, all the fibres are coming down aligned and vertically so that when they land in the PVA glue that you put on the base... They're all landing pointing, and that's got two advantages. One, your grass is then vertical, not just lying down flat. And second of all, all of the static grass is going into the glue. Whereas if you just sprinkle it on or dab it on, you've just got layers of unattached flock strands uh, lying over a small layer of stuff that's actually stuck to the flock, and that all sheds very, very quickly. So it, it, it 
it's an amazingly practical little piece of equipment. And again, come across completely by accident. Uh, just just one of these things. So how, sometimes... How, how did you come across that? Uh, my other half goes into craft supplies places. And uh, I, she showed me one of these things. And I went, you know, light bulb time. I wonder if I bought one of these, and because and, it might make the grass stand up straight. So I bought one, took it home, and I went, well, blow me. My grass is standing up straight. It works. What do you think else would be interesting? It does, it does work, folks. It's, uh, for, it, it will be that I think you said this to me, actually, at uh, the Phalanx show. It's the best £2 you, was, you will spend. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can't deny that. I am living proof. And if I can use it, anybody can use it. Uh, highly this recommended. Not, way, I'm not going to get rich on sales of Uppus, by the way. This isn't a sales pitch. It's just, it's just something which is just so stupidly daft but actually works. I'm always amazed at things like this. Yes, yeah. It's, it, is one of those, um, it is one of those light bulb moments, one of those revelations that you come across in the hobby occasionally where suddenly something so simple that you haven't been able to see before, like the basing system, um, it, it, it is well recommended. And I, I do expect sales to go through the roof now. Uh, we've talked about it. So Thank you better you stock up on some. Feature, yes. <laughs> right, let's uh, just a couple uh, left to go then. We've got um, the, oh, here we go. The aforementioned Pacific Troop question from Basement <laughs> Games. We want Pacific Troops. United States Marine Corps and Japanese. Okay, I'll, I'll put this as kindly as I can. It isn't meant to be nasty, but we have a timetable to work to uh, in terms of what we're covering and how we're covering. We're starting with Northwest Europe, which we're well on with, but we've still got quite a lot to do. Once Northwest Europe is in place, we're switching to do Late War Eastern Front. Once that's done, we've got to do Desert War. Now, the Desert Campaigns has got a plethora of kit uh, to do and we've also got to add the Italians into it so that, that's, that's a fair size project in its own right then we intend to keep it in Europe and flip to early war so we're going to be doing early war west front so fall of France, things like that yeah. and then we'll also do east front uh, so we've got the, the, you know, the, the early part of uh, the, the Russian offensive um, then we'll look at doing Pacific. Now, I know to any of my American customers uh, listening to this, you'll be tearing your hair out because to you, the Pacific War is, is massive. It is. It was massive. I, I quite agree with you. But we have to have a, a structure what, to what we do. Otherwise, we will completely lose the thread. And, and that is how we're looking at the structure. The only thing I'll say is when we do it, we'll do it like we've done everything else. We will do it really well. And we will cover all the gaps that have been left out in the past by other people. We'll also be doing uh, 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 British and Empire forces as well. We won't be forgetting those. So there'll be lots and lots of stuff to come, but you have to appreciate how big a job this really is for us. We don't have unlimited resources. And our rate of release on the vehicles, I don't think we've noticed it this year, has actually been pretty good. Mm. And we've got right. a load more to come later in the year. So, yeah, we are motoring. Is, is that a pun? <laughs> <laughs> Not really. 
that that sort of answers the next question then the the uh, last but one question from Benny Mikhailson uh, and it's one word with an exclamation mark following it tanks I think you sort of answer that don't you there yeah I can add a word with him yes exclamation mark yes (laughs) (coughs) you'll see in fact to be honest we just missed this you know Uh, we just released the um, British Air Landing packs earlier this month and in that we do a little tetrarch tank there you go yes but because there were so many there's Cromwells in there in the released. Air Landing Brigade. Yeah, yeah, there were, there were a couple of Cromwells attached to the recce. I don't know oh. deployed. But we've, they're in the catalogue. If, if they're in the bigger packs, we've had to release them in the main range. And nobody's actually noticed that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you sneaky devil. <laughs> the way we're looking at doing armour, if you understand our overall strategy, you understand why we're doing this. We're, not, we're working from the top down. So we're looking at higher formations, such as divisions, looking at the infantry, vehicles, support, weapons, artillery that need to form those higher formations, and that is dictating our release schedule. Um, I hope you're following this. Yes, I am. And we're also starting with infantry, not armoured divisions. That would have been the easy I mean, I mean, if we'd have gone out there and we'd have done Tigers, Panthers, Panzer Fours, a few couple of Shermans, Cromwells, people would be going, wow, 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 great, you're releasing all these, 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 these great things. But we'd have been putting a veneer of a range over what is actually uh, requires a much more comprehensive methodical approach. So what we're doing is we're, we're, we're starting with the infantry and all the toes, all the support weapons. We've very well advanced with the British. Um, we've got more armoured cars and stuff to come out, but that's come out nicely. Uh, we've got the Germans already prepared. People have already seen models for that. And then we've yes. just got a couple of SVs to do. Um, and we will have German infantry brigades and Falschenjäger brigades coming out a bit later this year. Then sets the scene to allow us to release the armoured version, the armoured divisions uh, for both armies. And then you'll see the tanks. That sounds quite a... Um... A speedy turnaround, actually, then, doesn't it? By, I mean, we're already midway through, or getting towards the end of August, actually. So by yes. the end of the year, there's quite a release schedule then coming for World War Two. There is, yeah. It, 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 we we are well on well on with this. What we've got released is sort of the tip of the iceberg. Imagine it's like a sausage machine. What comes out at the end? Is a finished product, but behind that is, is a chain four, five, six times that length of stuff waiting to come through the pipeline. Once that production line starts, things start dropping off at a reasonably regular rate. What's interrupted us this year is, is or will interrupt us, is, is a workshop move, which is already causing us things. It's, it's going to take a period of probably about three months before it settles down, so that's going to slow us down a little bit. Uh, but we've got models prepared in, in very stage preparation well beyond what you actually see released. Uh, like I said, this is a big project, so it's requiring a lot of forward planning uh, and, and uh, a lot of input at the production end, which you aren't going to see uh, emerge to later down the line. But it does mean that we will then have a pretty good regular release schedule. 
Excellent. I'm sure that is going to keep the wolves from the door then, Peter, and keep the, your uh, your your fan base happy uh, with that news. I mean, that, that does sound incredible. It's a huge project, isn't it, World War II, to do it properly? Always held up from doing it until we could do it properly. Yeah, it's no surprise it's going to take five years. Yeah, if we're lucky. Because we're also going to be doing aircraft, we're also going to be doing landing craft, we're also going to be doing blah, 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 blah. It's going to be everything you need. Yes, and more by the sounds of it. Um, okay, last question then, Peter. You, you've su- you've survived through to the very last question, and here we go. It's Melvin Jenkins Welsh, hmm? who says flags for eighteen sixty six other than Austrian, like Hanoverian, Bavarian, or Saxon. Right, I'm no expert on this. I'm going to assume from the way he's he's actually framed that question that they're going to differ substantially from the ones we already have in the Franco-Prussian War range. Taking that as my starting point, I would have then to go to my go-to for all these things, and that's a chap called Andrew Brentnell, and see if he's got any information on the subjects. And if they do vary substantially from what we've already got, then I'll look at it. I can't guarantee anything. I do all the flag design, and it's quite time-consuming. And as you can imagine, my time at the moment is a little under demand. So, yeah, I'd love to, I love doing the flags. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely love doing the flags. It's, it's, it's one of my little pleasures, and it's how I relax, actually. But it, it's a case of me getting the information, the time together. But I, I will actually contact Andrew. Um, and if you're listening to this, Andrew, you may be, I don't know, you can contact me, and, and we'll just see if there's any information we got together. Uh, we, we had a great collaboration doing the Franco-Prussian War flags. I'm sure he'd be, be there to help if there's anything I can do for 1866. Brilliant. That's a fantastic answer for Melvin. Then I hope that uh, satisfies you, Melvin. We are at the end of the questions, Peter. Well done. You've survived unscathed. Oh, good. I think you're unscathed. You're sounding okay. Well, it's okay. I'm, I'm just going to have a beer later. That, 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 that will unscathe me. One thing before you go is... Uh, the uh, something I'm starting to do now at the end of every one of these podcasts is to satisfy the bibliophiles out there and ask for one recommendation uh, for a book. And that can be, it has to be uh, either history or military history, but it can be on any subject, any topic, any theme, just one subject, uh, sorry, one book uh, that we can pass on to the listeners um, because, uh, if there's one thing that wargamers like nearly as much as their figures, it's it's buying books uh, at shows and, and what have you. I certainly came home with an armful uh, on Sunday. So what one book would you recommend? That's pretty easy. A book that caused me, gave me huge inspiration uh, um, and fed and nurtured my growing interest in uh, the early 18th century and that's The Art of War in the Age of Marlborough, done by David Chandler. Highly recommended. It can be a bit dated now, some of the stuff isn't quite right, it doesn't matter. It is a brilliant primer on the subject, and one of my inspirations. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you for that. Uh, Right, Peter, well, uh, all that remains is for me to um, thank you for your time, and this is genuine, that I appreciate you've got such a busy schedule it's difficult slotting in a couple of hours uh to to chat uh so i really do thank you 
uh, for spending the time with us. Is there any any parting shot you would like to leave for your um, adoring customer base? Uh, something that you might not have uh, uh, discussed yet or a little secret or uh, just a little snippet for them to uh, go away uh, from this podcast with a, a smile on their face. No real snippets. I, I, I think I'm actually pretty, pretty open up front about what we have planned. And I, what plans and what comes to fruition are two different things. I, I, can I just ask one thing of everybody? Just patience with us over the next two to three months. It's going to be a, a difficult time for us. Uh, with workshop moves and everything we've got coming through. And we aren't always going to be there with orders on time. We aren't always going to be there with the shopping cart open. Please bear with us. You know, we we will get things turned around as quickly as we can every time we can. So uh, I'll thank you in advance and <laughs> yes. pretty much leave it there. But no, again, let's just say thank you to everybody who has actually supported us in any way in the past, uh, and, and that's either with your wallet or vocally uh, in writing or just by being there. Uh, we couldn't do anything if it wasn't for people just putting their hands in the pockets or, or just, just saying well done and, and it is it's, it's, a, it's a thanks to everyone it's really good and it's great to be part of this whole process yeah it's the warmth and feedback that I've had for this podcast I think sort of echoes what you've just said it's been overwhelmingly positive uh, it, it's, it encourages me to go on and to speak to people like yourself who are the uh, producers of the content, the, the manufacturers, because without you, then this podcast wouldn't exist. So, yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's well-placed words there, Peter. So uh, thanks for that. Okay, Peter, thanks so much for your time. Um, I do hope it's not been too painful. And not I, I do hope that uh, we may speak again uh, over the airwaves uh, at some point in the future, maybe uh, towards the end of the year or, or into the new year about uh, where where we are. And we can have a look at uh, that expected release schedule and see exactly uh, where we've got to. You love works of fiction, don't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's setting the challenge, isn't it? I think that's yes, it. indeed. <laughs> OK, Peter, thanks very much for your time. You are most welcome, Sean. I've enjoyed yes. it. Thank you. Welcome back to Studio One of God's Own Scale podcast. Thanks again to Peter for joining me for a very pleasant chat. I really hope you enjoyed that. That was fascinating. Hearing about the Joy of Six and future plans. And of course, answering all of those questions from the community. That was great. I've lots of other guests lined up for the show in the coming weeks and months, including at least a couple of other well-known six mil figure manufacturers, plus other voices from the world of six mil one of which will be my first transatlantic interview, which is very exciting. 
If you have any suggestions for topics or guests that you'd like to hear, let me know. If you think you can talk to me for an hour on your favourite period from history and how to game it in 6mm, give me a shout. You'll be most welcome uh, to join me on the podcast at any time. This is a one-man show, so I do rely on others to join me, otherwise it become very boring very quickly. Okay, a very quick hobby update, if uh, you'll allow me. I'm powering through the Austrian Napoleonics for my 1809 venture with aid from the Stoke Club. I've completed five infantry bases and two cavalry bases, and nearly everything else is underway with at least an undercoat or base coat, so really not too far off completion once I can settle down and have a good old session with the paintbrush in hand. Um, I've picked up some Grenadiers and Grenzers from the other Partisan show uh, to fill out the order of battle for Cecile using Blücher. I've since realised I do need one unit of Landwehr, um, plus I could do with some Jaegers to fill out the infantry bases, but they'll have to wait now until the Bacchus shopping cart opens again in a few days' time, as discussed by Peter in the show. The other Partisan was a lovely day out with the usual array of huge, eye-popping games covering a variety of periods. The Simon Miller to the Strongest game, showing off a Roman v Britain thrash, was probably my favourite, but there were many games that ran it close. There was a Tobruk game, which I saw, which was excellent. Uh, I loved the 54mm English Civil War for King and Parliament game. That was great. And a host of others that I can't name it. In fact, as well as the Two Fat Lardies participation game, which I was desperately trying to hang around and, and have a go at, but uh, it was always full by the time I, I got back to the table. But it was great fun watching that master, game master, Rich Clark, running the players through the scenario and demonstrating the rules. Uh, he is truly a master of the art. And it was great to watch. And it was lovely to see the figures up close and the scenery that you will have seen him building uh, either on Lard TV or on the Lardy blog over the years. It really is a first-class way of demonstrating wargaming to the paying members of the public. I have to agree with Henry Hyde on a point he raised on Twitter regarding the proliferation of gaming mats that we see now. They are becoming ubiquitous, especially the commercially available ones, almost in the same way that the TSS two-foot square train tiles were perhaps 20 years ago. It does almost make some of the layouts appear a bit samey, but that's not to decry the efforts of the clubs and individuals that go out of the way to put these games on for the paying customer. It's clearly just a trend that we're going through at the moment and no doubt in another five years there'll be something else that comes along to reinvent how we display these games. Again, there's a notable lack of anything other than 28mm in the land-based demonstration games that we saw and in the main in the participation games. I think there were a couple of modern war games in 15mm. Seven Days to the Rhine, I think, was in 15mm. And there may have been another modern-based land game using 15mm or 10mm. There was the odd aerial or naval game, but predominantly the demos and participation games were in 28mm. That's not a criticism, and it's really up to the smaller-scale community to come up with something to show off at events like Partizan. Certainly pair 
Broden's Great North War game or Robert's World War One game from the Joyce Six would sit quite happily alongside any of the larger scale games, as would Pete Riley's little Bighorn participation game. But all three individuals do live in and around London and Newark is a good distance to travel. Uh, I appreciate it. I think maybe it's time for the Northern Six Mill Gamers to step up, myself included, to apply to put on a game at one or other of the partisans next year. I'll be fascinated to hear thoughts on that and anybody who may have intentions of putting a game on or applying to put a game onto the partisan team. It could be something that I'm interested in next year, most likely after the Joy of Six in July, because my own effort of the Tietval scenario from the Great War Spearhead rules uh, will premiere at the Joy of Six, but it could be something I consider to put on at the other partisan next year, which I think is actually in October. I think it's moved dates within the calendar uh, to avoid the summer holiday season. I don't know if that's the only reason or the primary reason, but it's certainly moving. I think that's that's a good move for them, actually. It sort of fills that slot that was left vacant by Derby when that went under a couple of years ago. But that's something for me to consider for next year. Uh, OK, that's enough from me. Please feel free to contact me uh, with feedback, comments or suggestions via email at godsownscale at gmail.com or via Twitter at godsownscale. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep talking about six. Bent double like old beggars under sacks. Knock kneed, coughing like hags. We cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots but limped on bloodshot. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired outstripped five nines that dropped behind. Gas! Gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone was still yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams, you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt, the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory. The old lie, dulce, et decorum est.
pro patria mori. Don't cry, don't cry, there's a silver lining in the sky. 